It is September 24th, 1994, and what is the frequency Kenneth <laughs> by R.E.M. is number one on the Billboard Modern Rock chart? Nope. Hello and welcome to Tell Me All Your Thoughts on Pod. <laughs> I'm <laughs> Quillen. <laughs> I'm Trav. I'm Al. And this is a podcast where we talk about every song that reached number one on the Billboard Modern Rock chart in the 90s, beginning with Kurt Cobain's death in April 1994. Today we'll be talking about What's the Frequency, Kenneth, the first single from R.E.M.'s ninth album, Monster. What is the frequency, Kenneth? Spent five weeks at the top of the modern rock chart. Uh, Here's a clip. <laughs> I thought it would be funny. Oh, I love that this should be an ongoing thing. We'll talk about Lakini <laughs> is juice and uh No, Lakini <laughs> like, that's possessive. This it's is possessive. This is it possessive. is it's not a contraction. Oh Jesus. Uh, I was just I trying to make love, you guys laugh. I'm sorry. I can't <laughs> wait can't wait to talk about the Everlast song, what it is like. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe that's a song we have to talk about, by the way. Oh, God. That's going to be um, a terrible. Travis, I hear that you are, uh, you like this band. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I am a fan of the band REM. Uh, I have gone so far as to um, join a tribute band, uh, having approached my middle age uh years uh where i perform rem songs in bars uh uh in a faithful manner to uh to to crowds who like that well how does this uh overall fit in with your your feelings about rem yeah so i'm really excited to talk about this because generally rem fans um they tend to focus on the early stuff and everybody says, Oh, you know, the IRS years are where, uh, where the best stuff is. You got murmur reckoning fables of the reconstruction life's rich pageant document. For me, the first Warner brothers contract, uh, segment of albums are my favorite. Um, I think that's right. Either way, 90s REM is um, incorrectly dismissed. Um, Monster is um, has always been sort of like derided as this sort of like big dumb rock album, and I feel like that's completely unfair. Monster, it's sort of a sort of a Nirvana wannabe dynamic, isn't it? 
I think somebody could make that argument, and I think I'm maybe too far inside of the information about the album to um, maybe fairly uh, sort of assess that. Yeah. Um, but for me, it's its own thing. It's very much its own thing. I think Monster is um, a way for them to try to stretch out in different ways. Um, they're coming off of Automatic for the People, which was this sort of, um, you know, album about death. And, and there's a lot of like kind of a chamber music sort of thing, a lot of strings on it, um, kind of a dark album. And that was from uh, 92, I believe. And then, you know, Monster comes out in 94 and they hadn't toured. And so they really wanted to... I don't think they toured for out of time either. And so they wanted to make an album that they could, um, you know, really kind of blow, blow the ass out of people's pants uh, <laughs> with these songs and, and make them really rock. And so they got into the Les Paul and Marshall Stack combo kind of thing. And, um, and I think they were pretty successful in it. I mean, I don't know. You know, everybody thinks of this album as being like the Dollar Bin album, right? Yeah. I, and, and that's fair. I mean, like, it, it, it is the, the Dollar Bin album, but I don't know why. Mm -hmm. Do you guys have any thoughts about that? I do. And I'll just add, Scott Litt, who produced this album, he noticed that this was the Dollar Bin album. <laughs> um, yeah, this was definitely a record that was easy to find for $5 or less at used record stores. And specifically for me, uh, I would go to Record Exchange on South University in Ann Arbor, and they had a $250. They had a $1 section, a $250 section, and a $5 section. And when I was a kid and getting you know somewhere between $10 and $15 allowance per week, the $250 <laughs> section was basically, that was my, that was my domain. Um, <laughs> And I always thought of this as uh, sort of like a reject REM album. And I don't, I'm not sure that I really understood what REM was all about back then. You know, I'm, I'm one of those listeners that you mentioned who I don't dismiss 90s REM. In fact, there's quite a lot of 90s REM that I like. But when I truly discovered REM and what they were about, it was when I went back to the, Aria, uh, the IRS albums. It was when I went back to really specifically Murmur and Reckoning, although I love Fables of the Reconstruction. Um, this is an album where sometimes the guitar effects and the stadium rock vibe I find robs the music of a little bit of its humanity and its personality. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of that is that Michael Stipe feels a little buried in the mix. Of Monster? Yeah. Wow. Okay. I know that you could easily say that about Murmur. Murmur is not an arena rack album. Murmur is mysterious. Mm -hmm. Yes. And Monster seems mm -hmm. like it's supposed to be immediate. And... The mm -hmm. vocals feel distant. The personality of the musicians feels a little distant. Hmm. So, yeah, I would go back to like to, to the IRS years as being like everything's very cryptic. Um, maybe maybe less so with Document and Life's Rich Pageant. But 
with Monster, it seemed like everything, especially lyrically, was very deliberate. Like he was making a, a statement about different things. And there are a lot of different themes. And I think it, thematically, it's a very strong album. Aaron, I, we haven't heard from you. And I, <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> leave you out of this. But uh, I don't know. Do you have any immediate thoughts about Monster? You guys nerd out all you want. I don't give two shits about Monster. <laughs> um, I'll just say... I I'm one of those people that you were talking about, Travis. Like I I like IRS the IRS years. Um, I did not care for REM or really know a ton about them. Um, growing up, and you guys both are the ones who got me interested. Uh, when we were on tour in what summer two thousand seven. Um, I think you guys turned me on to Murmur and that's pretty much where I started. And, uh, to this day, that's my favorite album of theirs. And it's not nostalgia. It's like, that's just an all time great record for me. It just hits all these sweet spots for me, um, that I still love. Um, so anyways, uh, I just think that run of albums is, uh, my, my jam and nineties REM. I just, I have not been able to get past some of the cheesier elements in the sound. Um, uh, this song is pretty good. Um, it's super catchy and great melody. Um, the, the, this is the album that they kind of, um, first started using distorted guitar right like they didn't really uh, i i think they they used it quite a bit going back into the 80s distorted I mean, guitar yeah yeah i mean i think about like begin the begin and, yeah and i was thinking life's rich pageant is where pageant. i would first hear that distortion um sarah my wife pointed this out to me um the other day when we watched the music video um and i was like uh you're totally right um she suggested that uh what is the frequency Kenneth um is kind of Brit poppy. Um yes. huh. which interesting. I hadn't really uh thought that before and um I think she nailed it on the head. Like I yeah, total like the production, the guitar tone, um you know, the stipiness of it is not Britpop, but um like yeah, the music I, is very Britpop sounding and I, I totally see that now after she she pointed that out. Yeah, for sure. And I think this is like the glam rock the glam rock album uh for mm. REM. And I think that that always kind of ties in with with a lot of uh British bands from the seventies. Mm-hmm. And I think there was it, Monster was always kind of dismissed for being uh, a glam rock album mm. like it was shallow because of that but it's not i don't think that at all like i was mentioning before i feel like there are all these themes that are really important um and i kind of wanted to tie it like jump into this thing that i've thought about monster which is that i feel like if you're you're paying attention to the lyrical themes it's it's very uh lynchian it ties in especially with, uh, to me, I, I, I always associate it with Mulholland Drive. Oh, um, interesting. Where they talk about, you know, there's a lot of uh, emphasis on fame 
and ambition and paranoia and sexuality and character and identity. And there are examples of it happening throughout the album. Um, you know, with ambition, they're talking about like Kim, King of Comedy. There's like the whole commodity thing. Paranoia, What's the Frequency, Kenneth, the song mm-hmm. we're talking about here with the whole like, uh, you know, the tinfoil hat sort of like uh, <laughs> background story here in Star 69. Uh-huh. Um, with sexuality, you're talking about like some of the lines and I don't sleep, and I dream bang and, and bang blame. and blame. Yeah. And, and also like Michael Stipe was like, uh, I mean really a like one of the earliest sort of like huge rock stars to come out and be gay and nobody really thinks of REM as being like a a gay or a queer band um I I guess I shouldn't say nobody does but -hmm. I don't think they get the respect that they deserve for being uh Mm -hmm. pioneers Mm -hmm. in that respect Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. like it's not sort of something that that people think of them uh in a foremost sort of way Mm -hmm. um yeah, and then character and identity, which is something, you know, coming back to Mulholland Drive where, you know, or even like Lost Highway where people are switching, mm. you know, identities. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I took your name. I think it starts with, I wrote down the lyrics. Um, I wore the clothes you wanted. I took your name. If there's some confusion, who's to blame? Um, and then like also singing, um, singing tongue as a woman not just from the perspective oh. of a woman but really kind of taking on that mm-hmm. there's I, I just feel like this album is so rich with um you know the them- thematic tie-ins mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and it tends to be dismissed and i don't i don't think that's necessary well fair. i should say something i didn't make clear i love this song this is such a an appealing pop song and everything is a hook the verse is a hook the pre-chorus mm-hmm. melody is a hook. The chorus is a hook. Just the guitar effect is a hook. Um, I think it's a fantastic song, and I'm, I'm very open to the idea of understanding and liking Monster more. Trev, I, I think, uh, I mean, even not considering the thematic, uh, the, the themes that you're mentioning, I wouldn't say that Monster is a shallow album by any means. Like, I don't understand that criticism of it. It's pretty varied in sounds. I feel like not really any song sounds like the next. Um, It's a really, like, sonically, it's really interesting, um, which is cool. Um, I wanted to uh, ask, uh, in the song, What is the Frequency, Kenneth?, um the backup vocals during the chorus yeah mike mills right yeah yeah is he like one of like 90s rock uh most noticeable backup singer that's a that's a great thing to say when i I, hear his like when i hear his backup vocals like you know you know i know Mm -hmm. i know it's him um yeah he's the mvp man like especially the song and I mean, like that goes just, back to the 80s, too. His backup vocals yeah. in the 80s. Like, you just, he has a very... Uh, and his occasional lead vocals. Yeah, right, yeah. right. He, he's got a very, his voice is not unique by any means, but, like, very easy to pick out in a crowd, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. And the bass lines, obviously. Like, the bass, the bass playing is so good. There's, you know, th- some of the hooks, you know, that Alec mentioned, um... 
the most prominent hooks that I remember before even starting to play instruments were the bass lines mm. where I would, you know, I'd hear like little turnaround pieces in the verses and those were the things that stood out to me and it was the bass playing mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, I didn't even really appreciate that at the time. We're, we're kind of burying the lead on some of this stuff. The lyric, What's the Frequency, Kenneth, is an allusion to uh, an instance in which Dan Rather was attacked on the street, and uh, the assailant was repeating, Kenneth, what is the frequency? And it, without the contraction, so Quillen, yeah, Quill, Quillen good right, job. Yeah, Quillen, Quillen's right. Um, so... Yeah. There is a fair amount in here that uh, that relates to the themes that Travis is mentioning. Michael Stipe says, I wrote that protagonist, the, the speaker in the song, as a guy who's desperately trying to understand what motivates the younger generation, who has gone to great lengths to try and figure them out, and at the end of the song, it's completely bogus. He got nowhere. So um, if you look at the lyrics, I, I got to be honest, this was another song where I just kind of have heard mumbling throughout my life, and it was great mm -hmm. reading along with the lyrics. I really liked the lyrics. Mm -hmm. I'm actually just going to I'm just going to read some of them. Uh, some of the things that I never understood he was saying. So he starts by saying, "What's the frequency, Kenneth? Is your benzedrine? I was brain dead, locked out, numb, not up to speed. I thought I'd pegged you an idiot's dream." tunnel vision from the outsider's screen. I never understood the frequency. You wore our expectations like an armored suit. I've studied your cartoons, radio, music, TV, movies, magazines. Richard said, withdrawal and disgust is not the same as apathy, which is apparently a reference to the movie Slacker. A smile like the cartoon, <laughs> tooth for a tooth. You said that irony was the shackles of youth. You wore a shirt of violent green. I never understood the frequency. I had no idea who's saying any of these things. I really mm -hmm. like these lyrics and they musically fit into the song really nicely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. And I actually feel really uh, affirmed. I was going to come in with my own interpretation of the song, having not heard that quote. And it is exactly that. Um, I was going to say, you know, it sounds like Michael Sipe trying to identify um, identify with this tortured person who is suffering from schizophrenia, the assailant of Dan mm -hmm. Rather, uh, trying desperately to gain some kind of understanding with the um, assailant that was uh, William Tager was his name. He wanted the TV networks to stop sending signals to his brain. And uh, Stipe wanted uh, to understand young people culture. And he would have been 34 at the time that this song came out. And, um, you know, at that point where he's starting to kind of move away from it and be a little bit more detached. And obviously, you know, being this, you know, enormous rock star in 1994, he's probably very sort of separated from everything, really. But yeah. Uh, Dan Rather sang this song at Soundcheck at Madison Square Garden, and it was featured on The Letterman Show, which I think is a nice little instance of someone who takes himself very seriously being game and playing along with something. Mm. 
Yeah. Um, I was going to add that I think I think when it happened, they didn't actually know who had um, attacked Dan Rather. It was just a, a random story. And he said, this is what happened. And then like a few years later, it sounds like in 1997, somebody put together that this person who had attacked Dan Rather later went on to kill an NBC stagehand outside the Today Show studio um, for something similar. So um, I, I, I did think, I think the amazing thing that, that Stipe does with the lyrics is he sort of like humanizes the sadness of somebody who's suffering from something like this, despite, you know, I mean, I guess he hadn't probably killed someone at the time, but, um, you know, he, he sort of made it relatable instead of just this weird sort of story about how Dan Rather was attacked. Mm-hmm. It's just like, uh, you know, humanized him a little bit. What you're saying is there are bad people on both sides. <laughs> Correct. This was produced by Scott Litt, who's having quite a mid-90s, producing the, remixing the singles from In Utero by Nirvana. Um, He's worked Mm -hmm. on every R.E.M. album since Green in 1988 and continues working with the band until New Adventures in Hi-Fi in 1996. He mixed MTV Unplugged, which we'll be talking about in uh, a couple weeks. Alice in Chains, MTV Unplugged. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I'm taking this really seriously. I really want to defend Monster, and I'm I'm coming in too hard. No, I no, you're good. No, it's but I I don't think there's a serious assault on Monster here. Trev, I really appreciated your take on it. It was really fascinating. Years and years of hearing that this is like you know some garbage album, and it's probably like a top two or three album period for me um i love this album it is one of my absolute favorites and i feel like it's just very misunderstood and uh i apologize for going so hard <laughs> no don't for please don't i'm riding riding for let's Monster. say a little bit more about scott lit and then we'll talk about him a little bit more when we talk about the remixes that happened later he mixed a, a fair amount of live through this by hole um, and he started his career, he must have been an Athens area guy or uh, uh, something like that, because he mixed, um, he produced an early Pylon record. Um, oh, and also weird. the DB's second record. I saw that. I read that. Yeah. Is that Repercussion? Repercussion? Which I'm not crazy about, but it has some great songs on it. Sure. All Shook Up by The Replacements. Uh, Indigo Girls, oh, hmm. White Chocolate Space Egg by Liz Fair. And later in the decade, or a little bit later on, Make Yourself by Incubus. Oh, yeah. And a little album called On a Wire by the Get Up Kids. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Great. (laughs) So, yeah, he's the guy that will, this is not the last time we'll talk about Scott Litt. Music video. Yeah, we'll really really dig deep on him when we get to the uh, uh, overdue. Uh, episode, the episode on overdue. <laughs> get up, kids. When we go on into the two thousands, uh-huh. and they had a number one. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure if that charted. <laughs> Music 
Um, another very simple music video, but I thought really fitting, really effective. Cool camera angles. I liked the uh, like first section of the song, not really seeing their faces at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but like not in a you know them being uh, obstructed or like um, masked or anything. Like just like the camera angles. You know, especially I think Michael Stipe at the beginning of the song, the angle is like so that you just like his head is cut off um, at the top of the screen mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah, um, but it comes around to show him later. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, show yeah. The yeah. faces. It, it, yeah, like yeah. as the song progresses, like you start seeing yeah. more of uh, their bodies. Yeah, um, there's also yeah. kind of a fun wait for Stipe to start dancing. At first, he's really static, and mm-hmm. then uh, mm-hmm. when that chorus hits. He he jumps into motion and it's really rewarding. Mm-hmm. So is this the first appearance of the shaved head? I think so. Um, I know with automatic for the people, the videos he had at least short hair and maybe like a pork pie hat. Okay. Um. Hmm. So I think I think this was yeah. I I would say so. Yeah. So he apparently was balding, and that was a decision that he made because he was balding. And in interviews, he talks about the pros and cons of, uh, of not being able to hide behind his hair anymore. Um, I think it's probably ultimately for his persona, it's a positive thing, because I, I don't think of Michael Stipe as hiding behind anything. Um, in some of the earliest video that you can see of R.E.M., you know, he's got those long, curly locks, and uh, he might be kind of hiding yeah. behind him. He's a real Ed Kowalczyk. He is. Yeah, he's following in Ed Kowalczyk's footsteps, his idol, Ed Kowalczyk. <laughs> um, the other notable fashion thing that I noted is that Mike Mills is wearing something that's referred to as a nudie suit. Yeah. It's not yeah. what it sounds yeah. like. A nudie suit is a sort of like a bedazzled rhinestone country star suit that was created by the designer Nudie Cone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was really interesting that in this era, they they had a very specific aesthetic in mind about what they wanted to do and how it tied in with the album. I know in the there's a um, a tour kind of film called Road Movie. I th- I think it's I think it's Road Movie from um, this tour where they're going out and there's a. Um, a segment where they're backstage before they perform on Saturday night live. And one of the um, assistants asks if there was anything that they wanted to use from the, from the closet, you know, Saturday night live, they have, you know, they have everything basically in the costume department and Stipe immediately says, do you have any faux fur? And I always am struck by that because it's like, of course, that like faux fur is what you would wear to perform a song from this album. Yeah, I get it. I wanted to ask you guys something about this. So, um, Al, you said you love it. You, th- you think the song's great. What's the frequency, Kenneth? Um, I feel like my perception is everybody seems to love what's the frequency, Kenneth. I don't ever hear anybody. Well, I shouldn't say love, but I don't hear anybody say anything bad about it. And to mm. me, this song is like the best representation of what monster is. So if it's not a problem with what's the frequency, Kenneth, what is the problem? There are other songs on it that are bad. (laughs) (laughs) 
Elaborate. King of Comedy, I think, is terrible. Ugh. That that's probably the only song that I outright hate. Um, I I like I do not like the song. I think um, the music's bad. Everything about it is bad. Um, sorry, Travis. But <laughs> there are two songs. Uh, well, three songs really that I I guess I would like to highlight if I can be positive. Uh, try to be positive about it. Uh. So Star 69 is pretty cool. Um, you know, just a good, straightforward pop rock song. Um, but I've been thinking about it nonstop for the last 48 hours. That, it's, got, it's got power. Yeah. Yep. Um, for me, the real highlights um, are I Don't Sleep, I Dream um, is highlight number one. Um, just a cool, gnarly song. Uh, I like the whole uh, bass writing out on the single note um i think it's during the verses that it's just the bass is not changing notes um and Mm. uh there is a guitar lick i think it's also during the verse and i know that this came out obviously before this album but um it reminded me of archers of loaf um uh specifically from white trash heroes which was their actually their last album which i think came out in 98 maybe but like it had that kind of uh mysterious uh dark but like kind of pretty um dissonant uh melody i I don't know if travis if you know what i'm referring to but it's a it's a really cool guitar line Um, i don't know the archers of love song but i do recognize that the chord that they're using in the verse is is pretty amazing yeah it, and i don't sleep i dream well, it's wonderful well, and it's not a specific song from white trash heroes it's just the general like oh yeah vibe yeah of that sure album. um the other uh standout for me is tongue um i think that song is just beautiful I it's like, that like too. such a good song yeah it's just beautiful like i don't have anything to say about it it's just a really pretty song um, yeah, I, I particularly great. like the ballads on this album. I like mm. Strange Currencies. I like Tongue. I like Let Me In. Um, what I wrote down was there's not a bad song on it, but it doesn't totally hold my attention. And that's just mm. that's not strong criticism. Um, it just feels a little bit drab and colorless. Uh, might be the mixing of the vocals. Might be the guitar effects. Might be the artwork. The artwork is another thing that I would like to talk about here. When I look at this artwork, partially because of the colors and partially because of the shapes, I just see the Chicago Bears logo. (laughs) (laughs) And I have my entire life and I'll never unsee it. That's so funny. I I never really thought that, but yeah. No, it's a tiger. No, it's a bear. It's I looked it up. It It, is? Yep, it's a picture of a bear. So it's like a deflated balloon, right? Yes, yes, it is. Yeah. Um, so it's it's yeah, I I thought it was pretty cool. I like it. I haven't quite tied in the artwork and the the album title to why like why is the album called Monster? Yeah, it's I, I it sounds like it was a pretty random process. Like different band members just kind of threw out different ideas and monster mm. stuck. I find it kind of hard to believe that they went from this directly into New Adventures in Hi-Fi, which I feel like is a really different album. 
so supposedly they they went out and toured for a year and a half maybe two years on monster and then recorded new adventures in hi-fi on the road uh-huh um and yeah it does seem like a little bit of a a jump new adventures yeah. is <laughs> if if monsters in my top three new adventures is also in my top three yeah so um I love just, that album quite a lot too. Yeah, not just REM albums, albums yeah. period overall. Mm-hmm. Um uh, yeah. I I think that there are there are some elements but it just it just seems to jump into something different. And I love how much of a uh, like a road album New Adventures is. It just has that vibe. I know that like the artwork sort of um ties in with that, but it just feels like like a road trip mm-hmm. listening to that album. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are some similarities, you know, you, me- you mentioned strange currencies. There's some uh, sort of unconventional melodies that, that Stipe does that sort of reminded me of Ebo the letter. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. The other ballad sort of equivalent ballad, I guess, on, on New Adventures. To me, you know, you mentioned Strange Currencies. I think Strange Currencies is everything that Everybody Hurts should have been. Everybody Hurts took it too far. But Strange mm-hmm. Currencies is the, the perfect sort of version of Everybody Hurts. Where it's like, in, everything is in the right measure. They don't give away too much. Uh, the lyrics are great. I was really struck by it this week, just preparing for this. I don't have anything bad to say really about anything, any of the songs on this album. I mean, but especially the first, whatever, eight or nine songs are perfect to me. So Scott Litt remixed this in 2019. Uh, REM's kind of been going through a, a big reissue, 25th anniversary kind of thing. Um, I'm just going to read straight from Wikipedia because I think that this covers everything that we've talked about. Scott Litt felt that the tracks were unnecessarily muddy and did not make for a cohesive album and noted that at used record stores, he always saw copies of Monster that people had given away and rarely copies of R.E.M.'s other albums, indicating listener dissatisfaction. For the 24th anniversary remix... Lit made Stipes and others' vocals more prominent and clearer, removed some instrumental tracks, and even used some different vocal takes, for example, in Strange Currencies. He cited the new version of Let Me In, whose vocals were more comprehensible, as maybe the best example of what's going on in the remix, which is simplicity. The members of R.E.M., while supportive of the remix, said that they were still happy with the original production, saying that in Stipe's words, it conveyed exactly who we were at that moment in time. The music website Pitchfork was critical of the remix, writing, the inescapable excess of Buck's guitar tone, as well as the slipperiness of Stipe's vocals, are what make the record special. Hmm. Um, I think that the remix versions are superior. I superior? Like, yeah, I think that uh, they grant a little bit clarity that I, I think is beneficial for something so familiar to me it just like led me to say oh that's wrong that's wrong you know that's not how it's supposed to be every time Mm -hmm. something was significantly altered 
Yeah, you you have a, a closer relationship with the album. If yeah. someone went through and 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 you know did a remix to clean up Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain, I would probably not be thrilled with the result. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Did it? Uh, when was the first time you guys realized that Thurston Moore sang back up on uh, Crush with Eyeliner? Uh, right yeah, now. now. <laughs> really? Oh, <laughs> yeah. No, like if you hear like the, uh, you know, the choruses, check it. Like it's it's very obvious. And it was something that was kind of like, I don't know, kind of a mind mind blower for me too when I uh, when I heard it. And then I, I like hmm. it became like immediately obvious to me just one day out of the blue. I was like, oh, my God, that's Thurston Moore. And I check the, the album credits. And sure enough, that was him. Is he doing I'm the real yes. thing? Okay. It's similar to uh what's the awesome Steely Dan Steely Dan uh jam from Michael Asia McDonald with Michael McDonald <laughs> singing backup vocals and yes. honestly I did not know that until I think I I YouTube video of yeah soloing the track 90s alternative equivalent of Michael McDonald right. and Steely Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Peg that's the song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Time to take a look at some other charts. Yeah, please. <laughs> <laughs> I'll Make Love to You by Boys to Men is still number one on the pop chart, and Interstate Love Song by Stone Temple Pilots is still number one on the mainstream rock chart. Um, but on the modern rock chart, if we look elsewhere, uh, Feel the Pain by Dinosaur Jr. is at number 11 mm, this cool. week. Good. Which I vaguely remember hearing on the radio. Oh. Yeah, interesting. I think. Not I. Uh, Toad the Wet Sprocket, Something Always Wrong, song that we've previously expressed our affection for, is at number 15. You guys had affection for it. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, do you know anything about the group Grant Lee Buffalo? Not really. Um, I feel like I've tried to check, check Grant Lee Buffalo out a time or two and just been mm-hmm. sort of like, oh, this feels very gentle, too gentle. Yeah, uh, they have a song, Mockingbird, that I do like that was actually recommended to me by my Spotify algorithm that I was surprised to see was at number 19. So Grant Lee Buffalo is led by Grant Lee Phillips, who, this means absolutely nothing to me, uh, is now the town troubadour on Gilmore Girls. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) yeah. Yola Tango was on Gilmore Girls. And I th- really, I think maybe Sonic Youth was too. Okay, I don't know. I, I have never to frequently it. remind myself that Betty White and B. Arthur were not on Gilmore Girls. <laughs> different, different girls. Um, Seether by Veruca Salt is somewhere in there. Uh, Supernova by Liz Fair is somewhere on the charts. Great song. And brand brand new on the chart this week is Bad Reputation by Freddie Johnston. Cool. Yeah, that song should have been a number one. That song fucking kicks ass and takes names. <laughs> well, I'm ready to rate this one. Me too. I think it's a great song. It's not totally there for me, but I give it uh, four and a half Chicago Bears logos. <laughs> I give it 3.75 out of five nudie suits. <laughs> um, I, I don't actually like this song. 
it's uh, <laughs> it's like my least favorite song on the album never need to hear it again um it's uh, yeah it's not fun to play it's uh just chord after chord what are they getting at that being said relative to the album i should say that's all relative to the album compared to other things it's it's tremendous uh so i would give it a four out of five um perfect albums <laughs> is it right. uh we forgot to talk nirvana wannabe uh i do think that there is a mild grunge influence on this album mm. yeah for sure so you um i don't know if you guys checked into this, but on Let Me In, that song's about Kurt Cobain. Uh, they used Kurt's guitar to right. play the song. Right, right, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think uh, Kurt Cobain's um, shadow looms over the album. I don't think it's necessarily like, I, I don't think there's a lot in common with Nirvana's music, um, but it is sort of tied in. I wouldn't say Nirvana wannabe. Maybe Nirvana just sort of like, Nirvana nod. Nirvana Not of respect to Nirvana. Yes. Yeah, not not a Nirvana wannabe to me. Yeah, I would never be so disrespectful as to call REM uh, any kind of wannabe. I know that they're they're doing exactly what they want to do and exactly what they feel like Mm -hmm. calling to do. Hey, tell me all your thoughts on Pod is now part of the off-shelf family of music media outlets. You should... Sign up for their email list where you'll receive their monthly zine. That's at offshelf.net. And you should subscribe to our sibling podcast, Best Song Ever. All right. Well, you can email us about upcoming songs at thoughtsonpod at gmail.com. Email us a question, and we'll discuss it at our earliest convenience. Or send us comments, memories, corrections, and complaints. If you send comments as a voice memo, we'd love to include them at the end of the show. You can listen along with our playlist on Spotify, Apple Music, or watch along on YouTube. Before next week, quick poll. Just want to take the temperature in the room. Uh, war. Good or bad? Uh, bad? Bad. All right, we'll find out what the cranberries think <laughs> next week when we talk about zombie. <laughs> Bye. Good morrow. Bye. Alec, thanks for doing the Lord's good work defending CC in this app. I felt for you the whole time. JK, JK, but that was fun to listen to. How did two of you get out of the 90s with little to no knowledge of Counting Crows? I was seriously shocked, but that's what's fun to me about hearing this. They were inescapable to me, but in reflection I realized that not everyone was in a Counting Crows Christian rip-off band in high school. Also, Quilbo, some awesome CC skin beating his children and bloom off of recovering the satellites. I have to know that it is a different drummer, but definitely a song that blew my teenage mind. Cheers boys. Rickle.